So our unique situation is we manage a lot of these patients ourselves. Mm-hmm. So when I see a patient who needs an injection or what have you, then I hand them off for somebody like my son just to do the injection. But for the most part, they got us involved to free their hands so they can deal with the tertiary care stuff right. and being the OR and, you know. Welcome, my friends and colleagues, to another exciting episode of the I Give a Damn podcast, made possible by Fluorescein Media, the company behind ODs on Facebook. Today's episode is brought to you by Bosch & Lohm and the new Infuse Multifocal. If you are not super familiar with the Infuse line of contact lenses, they are designed to minimize dryness with contact lenses by utilizing what is called a ProBalance technology, which is quite fascinating. If you haven't read into it yourself, I strongly suggest you do. But the new Infuse Multifocal also includes their three-zone progressive design, which helps deliver excellent vision at near and intermediate with out compromising distance vision. I even recently just had a patient fit with these in the clinic the other week, and she found not only could she see her phone easily, but she could easily still see the 2020 line on the distance chart. Plus, she also had excellent experience with comfort as these lenses have a low modulus and a high moisture content, and I felt good because I know these lenses have a high oxygen transmissibility as well. In addition to this just being a quick and easy fit there in the clinic, I also like that they come in a 10-pack trial, as a lot of times, because our clinic is just really busy, we don't always have the availability for our patients to come back within like five days. If you want to learn more about the new Infuse Multifocal Contact Lens and its availability, then I urge you, contact your local Bosch & Lohm representative. Otherwise, thanks again to Bosch & Lohm for sponsoring this episode. In today's episode, we have the distinct pleasure of being joined by a true luminary in the field of optometry, Dr. Mohamed Rafitiari, ODFAO. He is here with us bringing over 30 years of invaluable experience as a retina specialty optometrist, sharing insights into his mode of practice, how he got to where he is today, and some of the mindset needs to work in a demanding specialty of retina. But that's not all. As we sit down with him today, we'll discuss the critical role of optometry in managing conditions like diabetes and diabetic retinopathy, the challenges faced and the strides made in improving the lives of those affected by this condition. Moreover, Dr. Rafitiari will shed light on the excitement surrounding innovations in the realm of retinal imaging and the potential future treatments in this specialty. Dr. Rafitiari is an incredible speaker with a deep passion for his work in optometry and a true leader and educator. So without further ado, let's embark on this insightful journey with Dr. Mohamed Rafitiari. Well, Mo, this is a huge just honor and, and privilege of me for me just to get to speak with you a little bit, get to know you better as, as a professional. Uh, you've been in the industry for a long time, and we've got to sit uh, on kind of an advisory board meeting a few months ago, which was just just amazing to hear from you and kind of absorb some of your knowledge. So uh, for our, our listeners, viewers uh, who maybe haven't gotten to know you, had the real privilege, do you mind just introducing yourself, telling us uh, a little bit about who you are, what you do, where you, where you practice? Well, first of all, the honor is mine to be with young blood who is energetic and already famous. So thanks for inviting me here. I'm Mohammed Rafitari. I'm an optometrist uh, right now practicing for the last 27 years mm-hmm. at the Charge Retina Institute, which is a retina practice, basically, 
uh, we cover West Tennessee, North Mississippi, and East Arkansas. So we have different satellite office. I primarily see patients in our main office in Germantown, Tennessee, which is a suburb of Memphis, mm-hmm. and in North Mississippi in a town called Oxford, where Old Miss is the University of Mississippi. So yeah. many people know that city because of Old Miss. So I enjoy seeing patients and doing a lot of other extracurricular optometric-related activities, basically. Right. You uh, you certainly do a, do a lot of lectures. You participate, um, like you're a director for the American Board of Optometry, correct? No, I'm on the board of directors. Board of directors. Right. There you go. I'm, uh, I'm the president of the Optometric Retina Society. Mm-hmm. I'm the past chair of the retina interest group of the American Academy of Optometry. So I try to stay involved, you know. To just give you a little hitch, you know, <laughs> what, what really bothers me, our profession is like a fruiting tree, you know, and it's in every other organization. When you have a tree that has fruits on it, if there were only a few people taking care of this tree, but everybody else was using the fruits of it, mm. and then you ask people, well, we need some chemicals, would you give some money for these chemicals, and they get mad at you because you're asking money, or listen, some of us are retiring, or some of our good colleagues have passed on, passed away, we need help. Nobody wants to help. This tree is going to die and those fruits mm-hmm. won't be there. So we need to be involved, you know, and that's why I say I'm proud of, you know, young docs like you that stay involved when they're involved with the politics of optometry, by education of optometry, teaching our own colleagues, teaching patients, right. teaching the public what we are about. I mean, we need to keep this thing alive and a lot of people came before us to let this tree grow and it's our job to keep it vibrant and viable it's like the 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 phrase goes we stand on the shoulders of giants exactly right and and that keeps going like and you have to keep it going the uh now i know you've got you've been involved with retina for so long i mean how did you even decide or or find yourself kind of specializing in retina clearly you have a passion for it but Right, so when it? I was in optometry school, I, I was actually very interested in ocular systemic disease. Mm. And a lot of the systemic disease, that the effect is mostly in retina, you know. So then I came to Southern College of Optometry. I graduated from University of Missouri in St. Louis in 1988. So I came to uh, Memphis and did a residency uh, in primary care optometry. Yeah. But the interesting part of that residency at that time was half of it was spent with an internist. Hmm. We did rounds with him at the hospital, so I got a lot of exposure to systemic disease. That sounds super valuable. Then I stayed at SCO and I became the chief of eye disease at SCO. And this opportunity came up to join Steve Charles in Memphis, who's actually a very renowned you know, retina specialist. He's, he's the retina specialist of disaster cases from other retina specialists. Uh, so I've sure. been with Steve for the last 27 years. We've seen the practice grow. Currently, as I told you earlier, my own oldest son is go- just finished his fellowship with us, so he's one of our retina docs now soon. You know, <laughs> I recently became a grandfather for the first time. Congrats, because of yeah. Him. yeah. That's got to so. be interesting to be like, well, you might be seeing a patient for like retinal disease and then being like, well, I need you to see uh, our, our ophthalmologist, which is my son. I'm going to hand you off to my son right, to take right, care of you right. from here. Uh, that's incredible. <laughs> and our, our situation is very unique. You know, we have this 
we have a niche group of people we call them retina ODs, mm -hmm. you know, like Jay Haney. I don't know if you know Jay or not. I don't think so. Jay is actually one of the first ones, you know. And I didn't know Jay when I joined a retina practice as a retina OD. You know, so now, like, a few years ago, I brought an OD on board to do a fellowship. Jessica Haynes, she is yeah. with us. This year, we are starting another uh, OD fellowship. Uh, young ladies coming in from a VA residency to stay with us. So our unique situation is we manage a lot of these patients ourselves. Mm -hmm. So when I see a patient who needs an injection or what have you, then I hand them off for somebody like my son just to the injection. So the, the interaction, the relations between us and the patient as opposed to, you know, there are cases where we have to go talk to our, you know, surgical colleagues and stuff like that. Would you like want to come see this patient or do, would you agree to do this surgery on this patient? But for the most part, they got us involved to free their hands so they can deal with the tertiary care stuff right. and be in the OR and, you know. And I think there's a huge positive to that because uh, this is a generalization, but uh, I find a lot of patients, they connect more with their OD or their primary eye care provider, right? Uh, we spend a lot more time with them. We educate them a little bit more. And it's not on the, like, the ophthalmology's fault. I think just time-wise, time they yeah. don't have the time. Right. You know, they don't they got five, six minutes to do a procedure quick and then get out to the door to the next person. Uh, so I think that there's definitely a huge benefit to that. Have you heard any feedback from patients um, just coming to you talking about good experiences that they no that well in our in our practice per se like many other retina practices patients actually have to wait a long time even mm -hmm. us ODs like my schedule starts with 60 or 70 patients in a day yeah so I have to go through patients fast but you're right you pace yourself and you tailor your education and relationship based on the patient and how long you've known a patient, mm -hmm. you know, it's unfortunate. I tell patients sometimes I walk in the room and I know the patient's last name. And I joke with them, I'm like, I don't know if it's good that I know your last name by heart or it's bad for you that I know <laughs> your name by heart because a lot of the disease state that we deal with, diabetics, macular, these are chronic disease. You know, mm -hmm. a patient I've followed for a retinal vein occlusion now for 14 years. And this gentleman's been getting an injection nearly every month. So he's got an amblyopic eye. He had a small vein occlusion oh. in the good eye. When I first saw him, I told him, I said, you know, I think your condition is, you know, not bad enough that you may need an injection or two. Because when you tell a patient you need an injection, one of the questions is, well, how many of these do I need? How long am I going to have to do, deal with this? Right. Uh, you don't have an answer. I mean, you can give an answer, but our answer is as good as the weatherman saying there's 50% chance of rain, and you may have a sunny day the whole day, you know? So I told this guy, you need a few injections. Every time we back the way a little bit, his vein occlusion got worse. So when he comes into the office, he actually makes three or four appointments 30 days apart, mm -hmm. you know, ahead of time. So he has an appointment. In the book. Yeah. You know, so you... You walk in, you say hello, you look at his OCT, you look at him and you say, well, you're still doing good. You're going to go get in your injection. I see you in a month, you know. So I know the guy by heart. He, him and I, conversation is mostly about him asking me, how am I doing? You know, mm. uh, the kidney stone. He's asking about my kidney <laughs> stone. He's asking more questions than I'm asking him, actually, you know. 
So you develop this sort of like kinship relationship sure. with patients. And that's true of optometric practices. A lot of a lot of the patients referred to us. I had a patient recently referred for geographic atrophy, for instance. When I went through the treatment and we can do this and we cannot do this, and you know what she she said at the end, okay, let me go back to Dr. So-and-so, send me, talk to him and see what he thinks. Because this patient has years of relationship with that doctor. Mm-hmm. I just saw me in one, you know, 30-second moment. So she trusts her optometrist more right now than me. And sure. over time, hopefully, I can gain that trust by taking care of her. Absolutely. Know? And I think that's something that it took me a little bit, a few years of practice before I really started having those true relationships where I'm seeing a family or a, some patient a year, two years, three years before I was like, I actually know who these people are. I know what their job is. I know what their other struggles are. I know kind of their personality. Uh, and then I started seeing their kids in the same way. Like you see a, maybe a 10 year old who comes in because he has a traumatic you become a family doctor yeah and then i see this kid get his driver's license and then i'm like Uh, seeing him graduate from high school i'm like whoa like it's uh, i remember when i was in optometry school one of the faculty i don't know who it was he said something about your patients get old with you Mm. but that's part sad part of it too i have some patients i've seen I've, i've been in this practice for 27 years so i have some patients who've been patients of mine you know, for 20 years or so. And so when I first saw them, they were, you know, somewhat at the age I'm not, and then right now they're in their 80s. Sure. You know, so you (laughs) see this demise of them, and they really are like your family members. And, you know, the the guy that used to walk in our vibrant and sitting and talking, uh, slowly going to wheelchair or walker, or you see that. The one thing that... I would advise the young guys, and I tell patients, you cannot get emotionally attached because you see one problem after the other, and when you get emotionally attached to those, and I tell them, I talk to you, I mean, but I don't take you home with me. Yeah. I forget you when you leave this room until you come back because you cannot burden all that on your shoulder. You know, We see a lot of things that although we help the patients, but we can't fix the patients. Yeah. I ask you this question, and I often, you know, think about this. If you're an oncologist, what is the end stage of your patient? They die. Mm-hmm. It's sad. But you don't have a person that now is sitting in your chair. The end stage of our conditions is vision loss and blindness. Now you got a beautiful, living, breathing person who's sitting in a chair against you and say, Doc, what am I going to do? How are you going to fix me? And you have to sit there and say, there's no fix for this. You had a bad retinal detachment or you have bad macular degeneration or diabetes did this to you. You don't have a patient that's gone. You have a patient that you have to face and answer these questions. Uh, there's a lot of emotions in there. that. Is. I mean, there's a lot of sadness in that. And it dawned on me years ago, I was going home and I'm like, this is before anti-VEGF. So there is, you know, there is pre-COVID and post-COVID world. There is a pre injection and post-injection ward in retina. In pre-injection, a lot of patients, a patient would show up with bad wet AMD, you would say, well, there's nothing we can do, you're gonna lose vision in three months, have a good day, I see you, whatever. One day I was going home, I'm like, you told six people today there's nothing that can be done for them, have a good day, and you went to the next room. 
And I faulted myself, but at that moment, it's like, well, I can't do, I mean, there's nothing you can do with this. Right. You know, nobody can do anything for these patients until we have a solution. And thank God for all these new, wonderful, novel treatments in the pipeline that we're getting more and more involved dealing with these bad conditions that there's no end to. Right. I mean, there are more and more bad conditions in our neighborhood, basically, you know? And I, I can remember, especially during my residency, I was at the VA and I was working in both primary care ocular disease, but then I was doing more, um, I had a few days kind of doing low vision TBI care. And there were days I'd leave the residency and just feel emotionally battered from either sad stories with patients, whether from vision loss, hearing a war veteran share me his, his story, um, you know, and, and but I'd be emotionally kind of torn, and I did have to kind of wind the wheel back a little bit, just not carry that on my shoulders. Because you can't, if you let that, then you're that's going to slow you down, affect your judgment potentially. Exactly, your ability that's to, very important not to let your judgment get cloudy. And I, it's funny that you bring up a oncology because I have I have a patient who's an oncologist, and I had a, a similar conversation with him because he's just like, nope, I don't carry the emotion. I can't afford to. I just right. read the exactly. science and right. I apply right. the science. Right. And he's just like, I, I know, like you said, he knows where it's going to go to, but it's yeah, you, you, feel, you can't let you the emotion feel like cloud they're your cold judgment. hearted, but that's really not that. They're trying to. It's like the fire chief that comes to a burning building mm -hmm. cannot worry about people's wedding pictures yeah he's trying to put the fire up you know <laughs> the homeowner comes and says what about that sofa you're getting water ma'am you want me to put the fire out or what you know i'm trying to put your fire out basically right. yeah and you mentioned uh kind of the pre uh injection war post you know now that we have injections uh and then of course there's pre-covid after covid uh, you've experienced 30 years of optometry you've seen so much how has in your view in your um kind of experience i mean what how has optometry as a profession uh changed in your in your lifetime well you know if i go to that my niche sort of you know because sure. i went to a narrow thing and people often say oh you must be smart no i'm actually I'm smart in, I just know to know a lot of things about one subject. Most, you know, the typical general optometrist has to know a lot of things about a lot of stuff. That's true. I don't have to know about dry eye anymore. I don't have to know about new contact lenses, <laughs> scleral lenses, and this and that, and myopia control. I don't have to know about any one of those, you know. But just look at imaging. Mm -hmm. Just look at this room right now. You know, if you wanted to do this interview with me 30 years ago, imagine the size of these yeah. cameras you have in this room. <laughs> you know, we all of us have a cell phone now that we become James Bonds, basically, you know. So this imaging technology, you know, that look at OCT. You came to practice when OCT existed. I did, We yeah. used to have to look at patients with... When I was in optometry school, 90 diopter lenses came to the market. Wow. Prior to that, it was ruby lens or this and that. You know, so you see this technology at a high pace mm. grow is wonderful, but there is a little bit of a pro and con to it. People catch on too fast, but they don't take time to learn this stuff. So, like, OCT is a wonderful instru instrument, mm -hmm. tool, 
But many people are, are joked about this all the time when I give OCT lectures like, you folks bought a Lamborghini but never took it from the first ge gear Gears, to the second gear. gear huh? You know, you have to push this technology to its, you know, to its limits basically. And then you have to understand its, its limitations because right. there is limitation. You cannot just look at the topography map and see red and say, oh, you have mac macular edema. No, you have to look at the other aspects of this, of you know. So, but we've seen a lot of things change, you know. We've seen a lot of things in our world, our, our surroundings change, you know. Some of it has been wonderful, some of it is scary, actually, you know. You look at AI, you know. Yeah, who yeah. knows yeah. how that's going to really change and take off as, as AI is being applied to, like, retinal right. imaging, kind of those learning programs that can pick things up more subtly, patterns that just us seeing patient right. to patient to patient, we may, may not be, we may be overlooking. Well, and AI doesn't have a lot of our problems. The AI doesn't have our distractions, mm. doesn't have all, like we said, all our emotion stuff. Speaking about emotion stuff, a doctor may have a fight with their significant other at home, come to the office, and now that's a distraction. Sure. Or you're in the exam room and examine a patient, and my scribe says, well, they're calling and they want to send another patient. Well, that's a distraction. AI doesn't have those distractions. Right. AI is very disciplined. AI learns from its mistakes, you know, things that sometimes we can do, sometimes we can't. Right. But AI is not going to replace us, I don't think, either at the same time. Well, I think it's going to teach us a lot right. in terms of understanding databases, normative databases, like based on someone's age, possibly genetics, their just how long they've had things like diabetes, uh, subtle disease changes in their vasculature, being able to predict like, oh, they're likely going to progress within three years rather than five or ten. Um, and then maybe able to recommend treatment options based yeah, on Yeah, plug in the multifactorial stuff and it funnels it on to, you know, a better plan for you basically right. to deal with patients. I know um, diabetes is a huge part of our education, of the healthcare system overall, uh, especially when it comes to retinal disease. Um is that something that you're passionate about? I mean, you see it 60, 70 days, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, in our practice, you know, the, the significant bulk of the practice is made of diabetic patients and mm -hmm. macular degeneration patients, sure. you know. So diabetes is huge. And those these two diseases aren't going to go away, unfortunately. You know, the, the population of these diseases is ever-growing. Mm -hmm. You know, the AMD by aging by an aging society and, and diabetes by lifestyles or whatever it is in the human, you know. So I, I find two aspects of it sort of fascinating, a fascination is a, one is again, the, the advances in treatment of this stuff because mm -hmm. generations before us, many diabetics really didn't develop diabetic retinopathy because they didn't live long enough to develop diabetic mm. retinopathy. Because diabetic retinopathy, for the most part, has to do with the longevity of diabetes. It doesn't. If you're a diabetic and you show up in my office and you have retinopathy, you've had diabetes for many years and didn't know about it. Right. I mean, that's the bottom line. So diabetics, because of the wonders of medicine, are living longer. So now we are seeing more diabetic retinopathy. But look at, I have a patient, uh, there are two brothers. They're in their like 50s or 60s. They're both diabetics. Their father is also a diabetic who's a patient of mine. When I saw that, I've been seeing the two brothers for years. So 
finally the father shows up. I was talking to the father. I'm like, you know, your sons were diabetic for all these years. They've done so well. You know, they, they have minimal diabetic retinopathy. I see them once in a while. They, they go in and out of control a little bit. And he goes, well, I got my wife to thank for all that. I remember the days that my wife would put those sugar sticks, you know, the urine sticks inside their diapers. It never dawns on you that technology has come from people using those sticks. You know how Egyptians knew if somebody's diabetic or not? They would put the patient's uh, urine on a platform and put ants. And if the ants went toward the urine, there was sugar in it. So that's how they knew the so diabetes existed during the Egyptian pharaohs. Wow. <laughs> you know? I'd never heard that. Yeah. That's awesome. So the technology and the treatment, not the patients come and show you their monitors and they mm -hmm. have the you know the loops, you know. So we have better ways, you know, anti VEGF came to to rescue a lot of these patients. Sure. Back in before anti VEGF, if I saw a patient who was referred to us when they have you know, iris vascularization or a bad traction or retinal detachment or bad sure. vitreous hemorrhage, a significant number of those patients would go blind. Yeah. Right now, the number of those patients who go blind, a lot of times is non-adherence. They get better and they don't show up again until they become disaster again. And they keep repeating that cycle until when you have to tell them where, you know, game is up. Right. You're and done. that's kind of the... the the beautiful but also downside uh, beautiful thing about the eye downside about our profession is that uh, the eye disease is kind of like a hard cliff like people the eye tries to hold on to its function so strongly until it absolutely can't right. and then it just tails down um, and most patients think as long as they see okay they're doing okay but yeah. as I, you know I, I, I told the diabetic years ago I asked them I said do you have any kidney problems he said no I said has your doctor told you that? He goes, no, not really. I said, how do you know? He said, I still pee. I said, so because you still pee, you think your kidneys are functioning? Your doctor has to tell you that they have to. So it's like, as long as I see, my eyes are okay. Yeah, you're developing NV all over the place or you have starting macular edema mm -hmm. and you still don't have functional loss or many times this diabetic's patient uh, diabetic patient's vision actually slowly erodes so i often use the example of levels of tvs you know if you have a five thousand dollar tv and a three hundred dollar tv you see the same picture the quality is different so if that if they take that high quality and slowly reduce it to you you don't notice that now you're looking at the $300 TV and watching the same football game. Right. But when if you look at this and look at that and like, oh my God, there's a drastic difference between. But because their vision is declining slowly, no doc, I don't have any problem. On acuity, visual acuity, which I don't put a lot of, you know, eggs in that basket sure. because there are a lot of flaws. They're 2060 or 2080. When did you lose your vision? What? I, don't, I didn't lose my vision. You can't hardly read that chart. <laughs> They're still driving. You know, they go to work. It's scary. It is. I know. Uh, uh, kind of talking about technology, uh, more some more recent publications. There's at least the development of the OTT one six six molecule, right? Acutera, I believe. Right. Uh, I know that's quite fascinating with diabetes because that's 
potentially a, a topical therapeutic. So topical therapy, yeah, this is a purpose engineer molecule that actually has transscleral absorption. Right. You know, that's kind of new. So it's an integrin inhibitor. Integrin inhibitor. So in that aspect, if you think about it, if you apply that to treatment of diabetes itself, is a again a multi chemically bounded disease. You know, mm-hmm. so macular edema. You know vascular permeability, neovascularization, these are not unifactorial, these are multifactor. There are many growth factors, there are many uh, cell receptors, there are a lot of things involved, so you have to go at every aspect of it. So if OTT166 by Architera gets FDA approval, let's say, and it's one more tool to help our patients to avoid disaster, you know, it would be wonderful. Because right, right. now we know anti-VEGF is actually very effective to treat these patients with severely, uh, moderately severe, you know, and severe MPDR. Mm-hmm. But we have a lot of barriers, you know, they have injection anxiety, the, the frequency of injection, the cost of the injection, the fact that you tell a patient you need the injection. There are a lot of barriers, they don't want to go for it. So you, if you can add an eye drop to that, equation and either kick the disease a little bit further or have that as a backup in case the patient doesn't show up, one that may still need an injection, I mean, that would be wonderful. The more tools we have to deal with this stuff, the hopefully the better outcome right. we have, you know. And I think it's just incredible how th- that technology is, we're pushing technology right? in that sort of yeah. direction because it also gives me hope. I'm like, okay. If this is now, what is it going to be like in 10 right. years from now? Are we going to start a whole other cascade of new medications but, coming out? You know, retinal transplants. I mean, those are a lot of this stuff is actually in the works. You know? Right. Uh, retinal transplants, RP transplants, initially were placenta, you know, they were fetal cell lines, mm-hmm. you know, and there is a lot of ethical issues with that. Now they take peripheral blood from a different donor and develop retina on scaffolds in a lab where if you can find the models to, and they've done this on peak model. In fact, Steve Charles, our senior doctor, was involved with one of these projects with the, with the NIH and they were developing and they actually did some peak models where on, on electrophysiology it showed you know, so they destroyed the pig's retina and yeah. then they transplant pig retina and they showed the the ERG of the diseased area to the transplanted area and is normalizing actually. Wow. So, but part of it during COVID, it's sort of like put that project on the back burner a little bit. Yeah. And they're trying to get it back to, you know, so that's something in the future. Because if you think about like the geographic atrophy treatments mm-hmm. that now we have one FDA approved hopefully the second one, it really doesn't rescue what's gone. It tries to limit what you might lose. You know, so these people, we still have plenty of patients who have large areas of GA that have central vision loss, and those patients need something done for them. Yeah, if we can... Beside low vision, you know, AIDS and all that. I I think... uh, With a lot of my patients, they've asked that. They're like, like, can't I just get a new eye? And I'm just like... Is there an eye transplant? Yeah, I'm yeah. just. I'm always telling them like yeah. the retina is an extension of your brain. Right. <laughs> like you're basically asking for a part of your brain to be transplanted. It's that complex. And I was just telling them it's like it's so complicated. Maybe in 50 years, but 
Right, and people <laughs> see all these advances in everything else. You know, patient says, we are in the 21st century. What do you mean there is no treatment for this? I'm like, well, what if I take my car to my mechanic and say, you know, fix my car so I can go drive from here to Nashville in 30 minutes instead of three hours? Mm -hmm. Can they do that to my car? Well, no. Well, I can't do that to your eye. You know, <laughs> there are certain <laughs> scientific or, you know, physical limitation to right. certain things you can do, at least today. In the future, hopefully we are alive to see all that. Right. I know um, outside of just these kind of cool things, I didn't even think about the retinal transplant. Is there anything else kind of new or exciting in, in the profession, especially in your kind of niche of retina that you're just excited about going forward? Well, I mean, imaging stuff and, you know, the AI use of the imaging to help yeah. us because, again, not everybody's got time. Not everybody's... Uh, some of my colleagues call me a retina nerd where I look, sit down and look at <laughs> slice by slice of my OCT to dig in stuff to it, you know. Stuff like that is like, I mean, all of this stuff is exciting, you know. And as things change, things change, you know. We, when we find something, we know how much we don't know, you know, so... Pushing, That's pushing every envelope. Right. Forward. I know uh, we have a, a new associate doctor who we share an office um, for part of the week, and she was looking up some other kind of differential for a, one of her OCT findings. And she ended up teaching me something I had never heard of. I had never even heard of the disease that she had found. Uh, and then we ended up kind of studying Still articles on it together yeah. and you know who knows maybe we'll do a presentation for our students on it i uh, went to an optometrist school to give a lecture to their fourth year and residents i was sitting in there and i showed a slide of i think it was like the molar tooth sign you know there's a jubert syndrome okay that has some like some of the patients who have this is one of these ocular you know syndromic diseases you know one of these uh, celiopathic diseases. So one of its signs of that disease is called a molar tooth, you know, where the brain vernum has, it looks like a molar tooth. Okay. So I was talking about this disease and how I had the patient and I find out this patient has this Joubert syndrome by doing genetic testing on it, mm. you know. So I didn't know what that molar tooth sign was until I saw this patient who has this, you know, so I learned it from that patient. Uh, I must have and you, studied and you never it forget some, it. <laughs> you know, exactly. So I said, like, do you all know? I said, they said, nobody knew. I said, well, look it up. Guess what they did? Everybody takes their phone yeah. outside. Hold, put your phone down. I said, do you all realize when I was in optometry school and the professor said, look it up, we had to go to a library. I had to go find some textbook that had this. Mm -hmm. Then I have to look at the references for that chapter, go see if the library had those journals. I mean, it would take three days for me to find one simple thing. Right. And now you all have it at your fingerprint tip. The problem is, as I'm talking to you and say, look it up, you'd stop listening to me and you're going to look up something. You know, you have to pace yourself with that too. I know that's something I, I highly value and I try to push a lot of my students with we have fourth year externs at our clinic uh, is one reading articles but two digging up the the sources that are cited in those articles because yeah you can look up a lot of things on google but you'll maybe get 
a very quick abstract. But then you, if you just read the abstract, like, did you read the study? Like, maybe the study was done very poorly. Maybe they completely missed something else. Maybe it was only done on 12 people. Uh, exactly. Po a certain population. Or sometimes there are studies where something's misinterpreted mm -hmm. by somebody who's coding it in another paper. And you read this, and without fact-checking the first source, yeah. you just write that, but you you sort of disseminated a wrong information because I can read something and you can read something and our interpretation of that sentence may be totally different. Right. So I go put my interpretation in my paper and you put yours. That could take us in two different two directions. directions. Yeah. So I think it's a good lesson, I think, for, for any scientist, any doctor to just kind of, especially I think newer students, uh, young ODs, to have that that just little bit of humility that, hey, you, know, you really need to dig a little bit deeper instead of just falling on whatever you find on your phone. We need to also encourage our optometry students to write more, mm. you know? Sure. It's, it's, it's a hard thing. It's right? a hard thing. Uh, and you have to get a, you have to, it has to become, they have to at least try once, you know, to write the, like a publishable quality paper not mm -hmm. something you know so it's a good exercise actually and some schools yeah. i know they have requirements they do that but that needs to be encouraged now i know um like a writing my fellowship you know to get my fellowship through the the academy, the academy uh, i remember doing the case reports and and it was it was not my favorite thing to do because it forces you to read and know your stuff pretty well to be able to write on it and then cover the basically cover yourself that you actually did the right thing or if you found oh maybe there's another option i could have thought about that's how you you really push your your learning that's actually one of the reasons i like to lecture because when you lecture you have to write lectures and writing those lectures forces you to go read up on stuff again mm -hmm. recheck stuff you know it keeps you going you know if it wasn't for those i may lose sight of many things <laughs> Well, um, this has been just an amazing conversation. I got a lot from this. Thank you, Mo, for, you. for, for this. Uh, kind of from here, um, are you doing more presentations? Anything kind of coming up down the road? Oh, yeah. There's always something on the... <laughs> on the I, for my meetings, I still have a paper calendar. People make fun of me, but I got to keep those on a paper calendar. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. I, I'm always, I used to memorize like my, my schedules and now uh, thankfully, yeah, thankfully now we have everything in like a spreadsheet because right. it's just, I have to be everywhere it seems right. like. But well, thank you again. Uh, I hope you have just an amazing meeting here and um, we'll talk to you soon. This was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So that was our conversation for today. Thank you so much for joining us. If you are enjoying this type of content, please do yourself a favor and follow us either on your favorite streaming service or subscribe to our channel over on YouTube because that will go ahead and remind you whenever our next episode is coming out. And if you're somebody who is finding a lot of value in this content and also gives a damn about your profession of optometry, then please do us a solid favor by leaving us a review on whatever streaming service you are using. That will greatly help us out and help more professionals find this content. Otherwise, again, thank you for listening in, and I hope you have a fantastic day. We'll see you soon.